0: Hello and welcome to Minted Dialogue, episode number 219. Today is Sunday, the 15th of January, 2017, and we're back this time with David C.M. Carter, one of the world's leading CEO mentors, author, and a sought-after inspirational public speaker. In this conversation with David, we talk about his vision of a successful CEO, the importance of having a -a make-a-difference mindset, and how he plans to bring digital disruption to his own mentoring world and the supply of high quality mentoring to the public with his My Mentor On Demand channel. A stimulating conversation. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T H E M Y N D S E T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue. Um, not far from me, but across the screen, David M. Carter. So David, welcome to the show. Thanks for taking some time out uh, after the New New Year's celebrations. Uh, welcome to the show and uh, tell us who you are and what's your mindset. Thank you very much for inviting me onto your programme, Um My mindset at the moment is that after the last couple of years um, around the world, we've had a
1: whole series of huge seismic tectonic plate shifts. And uh, I think there is more uncertainty in the world than at any time I can remember in my lifetime. And the need for the average ordinary human being um, in a Maslow's hierarchy sense to survive and thrive and get ahead has never been greater. And, you know, whether it's post-Brexit or Um, with all the turmoil in the Middle East or what's happening in the Far East or what's happening with Russia or what's happening with America. 20th of January. We've had, you know, some pretty seismic shifts in the paradigm that we all thought was going to be a long-term period of safety and stability in the world. Mm. And um, whereas I don't think that it will all be as bad as we read in the media in the same
0: way that over the weekend all of the economists who predicted Armageddon after Brexit all ate humble pie and said, well, we got that wrong, didn't we? Because the UK economy is performing better than any other major advanced world economy. Um, That doesn't mean that everything's going to be all right on the night because I think that some of the, Seismic tectonic plate shifts will fundamentally change the way countries operate, and uh, countries operate with e- within themselves and within with each other. And I think people are confused, frightened, scared. Yet at the same time, they don't want to get left behind. Yeah, well, so it seems like the only thing we can predict is unpredictability.
1: I know a few years ago, I had a conversation with uh, someone at a talk I was giving and they said, oh, I hate change. You know, I really hate change. And I said, oh, it's funny. I love change because it's the only thing I know I can rely on.
0: <laughs> so, David, let's, um, let's just focus on you a second and tell us um, how you would like to present you what you are, because you have obviously achieved a lot of things and you're on a really exciting project. So tell us a little bit more about who you are for the audience. Well, um, in a few days' time, it's going to be my 58th
1: birthday, right? and um, the first 10 years of my career, and I left school when I was 18, so 40 years ago, the first 10 years of my career, I was very fortunate. I lived in seven countries around the world for more than a year, in the Far East, the Middle East, Europe, East and West Coast America, and I was involved in private equity and investment banking. And I think the the two gifts of that period of my life were one, I got to understand different cultures around the world and how to do business in different parts of the world, and secondly, you know, in that game, you know, there wasn't a week went past without looking at at least two or three different business models or verticals, and so I think I understood at the end of that ten years you know, how business worked, what made business successful. And one of the things I noticed was, you know, very often two companies started in the same town in the same year with access to the same resources, but one of them 10 years later was 100 times bigger than the other one. And I was always fascinated by what that company did or had that the other one didn't. And the answer was always leadership and a sort of great cultural X factor And that began to fascinate me. Um, Anyway, after 10 years of doing that, I decided I wanted to see if I could actually be an entrepreneur rather than be an advisor and financier to entrepreneurs. And so over the next 10 years, I did two startups in the UK hospitality industry. We owned and operated golf and country clubs. And the first one I built up and sold. The second one I built up and floated on the stock exchange. And I think, you know, I learned in practice all the things that I knew in theory when I was in venture capital before that. And um, made millions of mistakes and hopefully learned from most of them. Um, And then 20 years ago, on the 27th of January this year, um, I started my career as a professional mentor to chief executives. And then over the subsequent uh, 14 years, I built up what eventually became the world's leading CEO mentoring company. And so David C.M. Carter, the M is stands for Merrick, and that was the name of that company that I built up. Um, and we had offices all around the world, and uh, it was a fantastic journey. Again, learned lots and again, made loads of mistakes. And then six years ago, I sold that business to a management buyout, moved back to the UK. And since then, I have been building a portfolio of private individual mentoring clients who are CEOs of global businesses who wanted to both make money
2: and make a difference. And I have always believed that I could prove empirically that a company that had in its DNA a a make-a-difference mindset
1: would always outperform a company that didn't, um, assuming that they had access to the same resources. And so that
2: added to that learning from my 20s that you had to have
1: great leadership, you had to have a great culture, but actually if you had a a make-a-difference mindset, that was the cherry on the cream on the cake. And so for the last six years, I have been mentoring CEOs of global businesses about how to have a a make-a-difference mindset. It's been amazing. I've loved every minute of it. And then four years ago in this January, I went to the TED conference in Long Beach, California. And the theme of that TED was all about disruption, and uh, digital disruption models. So Uber and Airbnb and all the great disruptors. And I had, I set myself the exam question, how could I create a digital disruption to the analog concept of one-on-one mentoring? Um, 20 years ago when I started my career as a mentor, Um, not only did I have to sell my own services but I actually had to sell the concept you had sort of two sales Um, there were five or six years after I launched the business I'd go and see HR directors of large multinationals and talk about how we maybe could support some of their leaders and and they were like
2: wow what a great idea Um, and so 20 years ago we
1: were pioneering a concept so first of all you needed to sell and convert the audience to the concept. And then you needed to convert them to your product offering. So you had to sort of do two sales. Fast forward the video to today, 20 years later, everyone's got a coach, everyone's got a mentor, it's part of the you know common language. But it's not done very well. Mm-hmm. And it still only is really available to an exclusive group of a few people at the top of organizations. Yet, you know, if I give you all my money, I've got no money left. But if I give you all my wisdom, I've still got my wisdom. And so there's a a way in which people can share their wisdom on a platform um, where
2: they can help themselves and help each other get ahead by crowdsourcing the wisdom and advice that they need
1: to help them with their own particular problem. And um, parenting and education, which are the two most formative things in our own development, mm-hmm. have always been a push
2: model. Mm-hmm. You know, here's something you should learn. Right. Take this uh, camera, go, go, go use it. Um, one of my favourite stories was
1: my son, when he was about 11 or 12, came home from school one day and we were doing his homework. And... Um, he asked me, "Dad, when ever since you've been a grown up, have you needed to know how slowly glaciers move?" And I said, uh, "No, I don't think I have, actually." He said, "Exactly. Why do we learn this rubbish at school? You know, why don't we learn computer coding or mm-hmm. making games or whatever?" And um, and so, what I've learned over the last twenty years is that the things that people at the top
2: of organizations want to talk about to help them get ahead are no different to the things that the people at the bottom of organizations
1: want to help them get ahead. And um, and so... Give, give, in, a, give, give an in, example. In, um, despite, you know, I think we're often... Because there is a lot of great content out there, you know whether it's Harvard Business School or INSEAD or London Business School or McKinsey, Deloitte, PwC, all of the big consulting firms. You know that information is only really available behind a firewall uh, or a paywall, yeah. and it's only available to their clients and their clients, are all the C-suite of organisations. And uh, I I wrote a book four years ago called Breakthrough, and the whole idea of Breakthrough was to democratize a lot of the wisdom that I had worked on with my expensive fee-paying client to make it available to anyone anywhere who could afford £9.99 to buy the book. And... um, Uh, A lot of people at the time said to me I was crazy, you know, selling my book for £9.99 when I charged so much money to be a mentor. But, of course, the people who uh, wanted to become clients of
2: mine wanted the person who wrote the book to be their mentor. So it it uh,
1: it didn't affect, you know, sales or inquiries at all. In fact, it helped it. But, you know, I've had literally tens of thousands of emails over the last four years uh, from all around the world, I can't remember, it, it got to over 50 countries a year ago. And um, I've always been fascinated by the things that people wrote to me and said they found useful and helpful. And I think one of the things that education and corporate uh, learning management systems do is they over-assume the level of intelligence and the level of complexity of the problems that people have in their daily lives that they want to get ahead with. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, reminds me of a great line I heard in a presentation 35 years ago where the um, founder of Butlin's holiday camp business, sure. Um,
2: was asked to explain how his business was so much more profitable than any other hospitality industry
1: business. I mean, the margins were like 20% above the industry average. And he said, because we've never knowingly underestimated the lack of sophistication of the average British punter. And uh, what he meant by that was, you know, people who come from the Ford production line or the Sheffield Steelworks or the Durham Mines on a week's holiday to one of our holiday camps if they have clean sheets on their bed and clean towels on their bed the day they arrive that's luxury for them and they don't need turn down service and daily made service, we put a vacuum cleaner in their room and they sort of clean their own you know, chalets and so anything that they didn't want or didn't need wasn't given to them um, and no one over the level of complexity or sophistication of the punters yeah. who went. And so in 2015, um, we did what's called a Google scrape. And we found out what the top 50 topics were pertaining to personal and professional development um, that were searched for every year in the UK on Google. And there were over five hundred million annual searches, and for these um, fifty terms. Sorry, for these fifty terms. these, these fifty topics. Mm-hmm. You know, one might have been about bullying. One might have been about. Um, How do I present myself better at an interview? How do I make a good first impression? How do I get my CV to stand out in the crowd? 500 people are applying for the same job. Um, And, you know, if you went to sit in a a lecture at London Business School, the average student there and the average lecturer there would say, I can't believe people are asking these questions. Doesn't everybody know the answer to these? But, of course, people have been to university and business school and had jobs in big companies, they do know the answer to those questions. But the average person, you know, we did a bunch of research last year and, I mean, there's 31.5 million people who work in the UK and 26.4 million of them have access to nothing. You know, there is no online learning, coaching, mentoring. Well,
0: they have, they have Sal Khan, a beautiful academy at least, and a few TED Talks.
1: Right, but you're assuming that they even know that those things exist.
0: Yeah. Well, so, hey, listen, David, you, you bring up a lot of points. And uh, I want to start with one, which is that you mentioned this notion of Maslow's pyramid and uncertainty in, in your mindset and, and how we're in a, in a mode of survival. And at the other time, you have Make a Difference as a, uh, a way for sustainable success for companies, as I understood it. So way I, I just interpreted it. How do you marry those two in uncertain times? Was one that sort of pushing towards the bottom of Maslow's and the other one sort of seems to be a little bit more higher up the uh, pyramid. But what, how do you take them? What's your take? Um, it's really simple. Um, If you think
1: of um, the average big organisation as an iceberg, we all know that one-seventh of the iceberg pops out the top of the water and six-sevenths sits underneath it. And actually, the six-sevenths of the workforce of any organisation is where the culture of the entire organisation, that's the boiler room, and, you know, the number of huge organizations I've worked with over the years where they've got some super-duper culture change program, learning management system program, or whatever, and no one at the bottom's even heard of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so all this brilliant stuff which is devised in the boardroom and the C-suite with, you know, these fabulous global consultancy firms – You know, the CEO, you know, asked his senior executive six months later, well, how come we've come up with this brilliant strategy but it hasn't been executed properly? And the answer is because people at the bottom don't even know about it and it doesn't get cascaded down. And so the simple um, one-word answer to your question is engagement. Mm -hmm. And people don't feel engaged. They want to be engaged but they're not getting, you know, the – information or support or help or encouragement from their line manager or their department manager or their area manager or regional manager, whatever, um, to in order to get engaged. So, and very often there's a big difference between the um, stuff which is pushed at them, which sometimes it's interesting and sometimes it's not. Compared to what they are struggling with in, on a day-to-day basis, um, and that would help them be more effective and more efficient in their in their role. Now, most people go home at the end of the week wanting to have made a difference, wanting to have contributed, wanting to have been engaged. But if they go home and feel it was a, yet another, you know, disastrous week with no support from their boss or line manager, or just a paycheck. Stuff, it's, it's very demoralizing.
0: When one of my observations, David, is I completely agree with that overall statement. And, you know, it's my experience having worked in a large organization myself. But the other thing, or should I say, and the other thing I've seen is that uh, accompanied by or not these large consultancies, the issue at some level is whether the C-suite CEO uh, in, at the highest level is actually engaged him or herself and and I what I mean by engagement is not an intellectual exercise oh yeah it's really important we should make a difference and help the starving children in Zimbabwe uh, you know that's, we, that's something that's important but it's sort of, it, it often seems to me as more a case of writing it in the annual report saying it on television but the individual himself or herself doesn't necessarily personally have a, a stronger engagement in the difference that they're trying to make agreed <laughs> so but i suppose that's in the in the in the realm of you know you have a client and the client comes to you and says and and i think this is the same kind of problems that you find in business where someone in the company comes to the C suite says you want to make a difference here's an idea they put it on the table the consultants you know put it into some beautiful powerpoint presentation but it kind of goes no further, or at least it, it struggles even at the highest level. I, I, I think I think everything you just
1: said, by the way, um, you, you're, you're partly right and partly wrong. Okay, good. first of all, you know, let's go back to the statistics: thirty-one and a half million people at work in the UK, but twenty-six point four million of them work for an SME, and you know, so everything you've just described you know, I don't think is
2: appropriate for an SME. It it applies to a big company. Um, And all the media is about big companies, all the stock
1: exchange reporting is about big companies. So we we tend to think that because that's what we read about and hear about, that that's how business is. But that isn't how business is. There are plenty of smaller and medium-sized companies who have figured out the only way to, you know, excel and be the best that they can be is to get their employees engaged, Um, and I think that uh, there are plenty of get-up-and-go, get-ahead, make-a-difference leaders of smaller organizations, often owner-manage where, you know, of course they want to have more revenues and more profits, and but they, they kind of only want that if they can do it in a certain way, you know, with integrity, with honesty, with transparency and all those other good things. And they care about their people. Um, and so I think, um, I, I think your observations and comments are significantly true about bigger organisations. But, you know, I, I've mentored CEOs of huge, gigantic organisations around the world in over the last 20 years. And um, those that I have worked with had an innate curiosity, otherwise they would never have been engaged in the first place, where they almost had a, um, there was a known unknown in the sense that they knew there had to be a way that they could get improved employee engagement. They weren't quite sure how to do it. Um, and they were open to the mindset that if it was possible, they'd like to find a way to do it. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't suffer from short-term share price, reporting, board, shareholder pressure, um, which they all did. But, you know, of those clients that I work with, you know, they pushed back they fought to do the right things the right way over a long period of time while still delivering you know, against their expectations. But bizarrely, if you take an example like um, Amazon, I mean, Amazon is, I can't remember the numbers, but it's just multi, multi billions and hundreds of billions of value that's been created.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, they never make a profit, or hardly any profit because they take all the profits and plow it back into the business. So, For years and years and years, they don't pay dividends, they don't, you know, or haven't made huge dividends, they haven't made lots of profit, but the company's grown and grown and grown and, you know, the CEO there is like, no, we don't need to pay dividends, all we need to do is grow the value of the business so we can do the right things, the right way to grow this business without having to kowtow to the market and produce, you know, quarterly earnings growth, cash flow growth, all those other normal benchmarks. So even with big companies, there are leaders who say, well, you you do it your way and I'm going to do it my way. Well,
0: I agree with you. And the issue or the the point I wanted to sort of maybe bridge between SMEs um, and big companies is, um, well, on the one hand, with Amazon in particular, it's one of those cases where the CEO is the founder and also you know, a big owner of the company, which is such a difference from a CEO who's dropped in, who has a great path, has done 16 other companies, lots of CEOs, and comes in, has minimal ownership, maybe, you know, some kind of uh, stock ownership, you know, stock options and so on, but doesn't have majority voting shares. And so Bezos, in the case of Amazon, says, "I, I live fine off, personally, off a couple hundred million dollars a year. And I don't really need anything more for now. And by the way, you shareholders—that's what you bought into. That's what I do. I lead by example. For the rest, and and the, where the link comes to the SMEs is when you have to transition. So the CEO founder founds the thing, grows it. It's going really great. Wow, oh, I love it. I love. I'm engaging my employees because that's how I'm going to succeed. Oh well, now I've done twenty years. Basta. I I'm gonna. Transfer. So either I sell out or I go public or I just go do another thing and I have a yacht or I can do other things. That transfer into the new company with a, a dropped-in CEO or maybe even somebody who comes through the ranks, It's a, that's, a, that's where it comes back down to the ability for the company's DNA, culture, and the engagement at the top level becomes important again. Yeah, but I, I think... Um you know, 20, 25
1: years ago, there wasn't that much choice. Um, And we hadn't democratized wealth and we hadn't democratized opportunity like it's happened in the last 25 years. And, you know, one of the big things about millennials is unless they believe in the values and the purpose and the mission and vision of the organization, they don't want to stay and they'll move on. 67% of millennials intend to leave their organizations within the next two years. Um, primarily due to poor employer investment in their career development. And, um, you know, so if they see bad practice, if they see, you know, they're like, we're out of here. They rat it out quickly. And uh, not only that, but they, you know, put the comments on social media. So, you know, I think that um, the the dinosaur, which is the big corporate behemoth, you know, if they don't reinvent themselves and disrupt themselves over the next 10 years, you know, they're, they're going to be changed you know, from the outside in. Yeah, I, um, inside and, out. You know, Big organizations find it harder and harder to recruit millennials they find it impossible to retain them. Um, so the employee churn in that age cohort is huge. Um, and, you know, the average millennial looks around and thinks, well, I'll start my own business. I can crowdfund the money I need. I can you know tell the world about it through social media. It's like all the tools are available for anyone to kind of do whatever they want now. And so big organizations, unless they reinvent the culture, um, there are many, I mean, I can't remember the statistics, but it's, I mean, if you look at the number of companies that are on the London Stock Exchange today in the top 500 companies that were around 100 years ago, there's right. only two.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: If you look at the ones around 50 years ago, it's a, a handful. And if you look at the ones that were around ten years ago, it's still shockingly small. I don't remember the statistics. So right. you know, being a FTSE one hundred company today is not, not an entitlement. No, but it also doesn't mean long term stability. I mean. yeah. It's like your your right to be broken up, disrupted, or whatever. And I think actually I don't I don't justify it in any way, but um, you know, running a 30, 50, 60,000 people global business that is a dinosaur, you know, it's not a job that um, is easy to do. And so any CEO who you know gets headhunted to go in and turn something around and sort it out, you know, wants a bulletproof vest. Yeah. And it's like, well, I want X million a year, and even if you fire me after a year because it doesn't work out, I want you know <laughs> X number of years' payoff, and I want this and that. And yeah, it's almost like they want danger money, and because it's fraught with danger, you know, the companies can't get someone to go and even take the job if they don't pay them ridiculous amounts of money, and they get paid for failure or success. And but you know, ha- despite the controversy about him, I think one of the greatest entrepreneurs that Britain's ever produced is Sir Martin Sorrell. Oh, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know... SMS. He's taken a tiny, tiny little company that made wire and plastic products and turned it into the world's
2: biggest advertising agency. And, um, you know, if he gets paid
1: 50 million a year after having done that for 30, 40 years, or however long it is, You know, good luck to the bloke and, you know, he's built an amazing organization that share prices have grown year after year and he deserves every penny of the rewards. And But he's been there and stuck with the organization for 30 years. It's not like the guy in one of the big um, energy companies recently who was appointed CEO and then a deal happened 11 weeks later and he walked away with
0: 9.6 million. Yeah, well, and that does bring up the, the issue uh, that uh, Sir Martin might have about transmission. There are two other areas I wanted to get into, David. And uh, one of them is, so uh, you have your, um, your Secrets to Success that's on British Airways. So I haven't seen it on BA, but I did see it online. And uh, one of the things that struck me about the interviews that you had with this really great coterie of CEOs or ex-CEOs is this issue of failure. So, you you talk about it, you know, and you yourself at the very beginning said you, you only made a million mistakes. Um, so, and, and we say that we learn through failure, we learn through our mistakes. Uh, and, and, and a remarkable number of the people you interviewed didn't enjoy or finish or, you know, do the big schools and all that. To what extent, then, can you, you know, be or learn from these people if, you know, you really do need to? actually do the mistakes yourselves or, you know, have the failures yourself? Um, Well, let me start off by distinguishing between a mistake and a failure. Okay. Um,
1: I have a, a line I love, which is that failure isn't falling down. Failure is staying down. And so um, what other people might call failures, I call mistakes. Um, and the eternal optimist to me actually calls them learning opportunities. Um, and what, what is a mistake? It's like, oh, that didn't work out how I thought it was going to turn out. So what could I have done differently? How could I have got the result I wanted? Was the result I wanted even realistic in the first place? Um, so there's a constant, um, uh, loop, which is you put this, the, the output back into the machine and see what you could have done differently, how it could have worked out, you know, and some of the things that I think I have made mistakes on, um, you know, if age 58, I woke up on new year's day this year and thought, Oh, do you know what? I'm going to win Wimbledon in a few years time. I'm going to learn tennis. You know, the ch- it's a pretty unrealistic thing for me to shoot for. You know, give someone my age and the practice and the training and everything else as well. Or if I wanted to, you know, win the British
2: Open, so that You know, that would be an unrealistic thing for me to shoot for.
1: Um, but I, I think that um, you know, I watch lots of things online, I read lots of things, I have lots of conversations with people and you know, really smart you know entrepreneurs when they get together you know, they're always like, oh what did you learn from that, what did you learn from that and so if I can learn to avoid a mistake on the back of someone else telling me a story, then when it happens in my life I think, well oh, I remember that story and that's not going to work for these reasons so um, so I don't think you need to put your hand in the fire to figure out it's hot. If someone else puts their hand in the fire and you watch them burn, it's like, okay, I get that that is not a a smart thing to do. I can avoid doing that myself. Um, You don't actually need to do it. Um, But I think there are certain things that you have to do in order to find out if you can do it or not. So, And the greatest example of that is managing other people. Mm -hmm. And um, my my son, who is 26, uh, before Christmas, was offered what on paper was a, a, a promotion and an opportunity to earn more money. But it would have been a shift from being a really hard-working, diligent, competent, capable salesman to being a manager Mm -hmm. of salespeople. Mm -hmm. And um, my son is a a fantastic salesperson, but he doesn't have great personal organizational or personal management skills. So the idea of him managing other people, you know, didn't add up to me. And when I asked him about that, he was like, oh, no, I think you're right. And so... You know, I pointed out something that he could then, uh, because he knew he wasn't good at managing other people, but I think that um, if he takes up this job and thinks, no, I'm going to have a go, go at it, then if in a year's time he figures out he isn't very good at it, that's not failure. He's just tried something and it didn't work and mm-hmm. he's learned from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he if it does work, I'm sure there'll be things on the journey they thought, well, I didn't know that about myself and I wasn't sure, didn't know how that worked. And and if there's someone there to sort of talk to, brainstorm with, you know, um, and swap stories with, then he could probably avoid some mistakes, but he, he's still bound to make loads.
0: Um, In the end of the day, it's not necessarily about the mistake you made, but the way you react to it.
1: Well... I like to think of myself as a reasonably conscious evolved human being, but I'm still shocked sometimes when I end up doing something or something happens in my life. And I think, you know, what has got to happen, David, for you to learn that lesson? You know, it's, it's not many things, but there are a few things that, you know, despite being nearly 58, I, I, there are patterns in my life and, you know, the one thing that um, we all know is that we have that little voice in us, which says, oh, I don't think you get very good at this, or I think you're cutting a corner, I'm not sure if this will work, whatever. Oh, I'll well, give it a go anyway, maybe it'll work this time. And of course it doesn't. Well, we knew beforehand it wasn't gonna work, but we somehow thought we could overwrite the program. I'm smarter now. Um, well, I'm smarter now because I have I finally learned that I can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, or, or, or that we have patterns that, you know, come from our childhood. or And sometimes we don't understand um, ourselves that well. I know over Christmas, New Year, it doesn't really
2: matter what it was, um, but walking the dog on the beach
1: in, uh, at, at Christmas, I, I suddenly had an epiphany about um, a pattern in my life Not what the pattern was. I was aware of the pattern, but I suddenly figured out where it came from. And I thought, okay, now I understand where that comes from. I can understand the pattern. And now I understand where it comes from. I am pretty sure I can be much smarter next time that the opportunity presents itself for me to get involved in something like that. I will remember both the origin and the pattern, right. and I can be smarter at making a more informed choice next time.
0: So it sounds like you need, we all need to be walking our dogs. I, I guess, you know, some, I was just listening to a podcast. I don't know if you uh, know Mark Moran. He does a, a podcast called What the Fuck? WTF. And um, he's he's got a, a very uh, ebullient uh, character. He's 53, and, uh, and he's gone through a lot of – he's true – traversed a lot of difficulty, including massive addiction to drugs. And now he's quite the celebrity. Anyway, he just did an interview with Bruce Springsteen. And what I was interested in about that is, you know, this notion of success. What is the key to success? And and the commonality between Mark Moran interviewing Bruce Springsteen is that both of them had really troubled troubled backgrounds and, and faced massive failures and and got maybe grounded also by these failures. And, and in, of course, as musicians... It allows them to play the blues in a more authentic manner perhaps. But again, it's sort of funny how even in music, uh, let's say that the notion of failure and difficulty is so instrumental in making you come out. So I just thought that was kind of a fun parallel.
1: I think that um, the media has, and the advertising industry have a really big uh Case to answer in terms of the def- definition of success, um, and you know the projection is too much about material things, financial things, power things. You know there are plenty of people on this planet who success for them is they do a good job being parents, they do a good job contributing to their company, whatever it is. You know the local postman in, in, in a village community, you know, making sure the post gets delivered, whether it's raining, snowing, hurricanes or whatever, and making sure that things get delivered to the old people in their homes or um, who could be a scout leader and a good dad and husband. You know, he's got an amazingly successful life, you know, because he's achieved what he wants to achieve um, compared to Martin Sorrell, there's probably a lot of things that Martin Sorrell might be jealous of. You know, he's, you know, relationship with his family, with the community, and all that stuff. But has he made as much money as Martin Sorrell? No. Well, who's more successful? And I think that um, I, I, I really believe that Buddhist phrase that success is the journey, not the destination. And we only look, need to look over the last 12 months at the some of the people who've been in the news for bad things um, and who have perhaps allowed companies to go bust but swanning around on their yacht in a tax haven, you know, is that success? Would you really want to swap your life and be vilified in public, you know, for, for your life and perhaps be stripped of an honour, you know? Is that success? I, I, don't, I don't know many people who would... Now, there are some people who would say, hey, if I've got that much money, I can tell everyone to go jump in the water and I wouldn't care what they thought. So that's fine if that's their success. But I think for the vast majority of human beings, it's living a good life, being a good friend, having strong, proper relationships. It's about making a difference to the people you touch.
0: Yeah, and then that comes back down to the... Being the best version of yourself. Right. Being the best version of yourself
1: It never had a financial target attached to it or a level of material achievement. So, you know, the story would take too long to tell. But my aunt, who sadly passed away a few years ago, was a Maori in New Zealand. And she was the uh, reception class teacher in a local primary school uh, for all of her career. And, you know. Uh, when she passed away, thousands of people came to pay their respects to her, and they had all ended up being the chief executive of Air New Zealand or the Bank of New Zealand or whatever, whatever. Um, but they all remembered things that she taught them in reception class. And it's like she'd really been an amazing leader. And now, to me, she's one of the greatest examples of leadership and success I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. Um, she lived a great life she made a huge difference she did something she was passionate about she was really good at it she, she earned some money to pay the bills and she made a difference to the lives of thousands of people it's like wow what a successful life
0: she le- she led so David on that inspirational note uh, I won't be I think we have time to cover my my last question about learning online but tell us um, how can people find breakthrough um, and also uh, where we are in my mentor which is uh, your baby uh, for this year. Um, Breakthrough is the book which I wrote
1: um, four years ago now. And the whole idea of Breakthrough was to take 20 of the breakthroughs
2: or lessons that I had worked on for many years with my clients and to democratize
1: those concepts and ideas and make them available to anyone, anywhere. And um, so you can buy Breakthrough online or in a bookstore. Um, there's 20 chapters. You don't need to read it as a book. You can dip in and dip out as and when you feel like it into any, any chapter. And each chapter is an idea that would help you get ahead in a particular aspect of your life. And uh, later on this year, 2017, I'm launching my mentor, which is a digital disruption platform and channel to the analogue concept of one-on-one mentoring. It's crowdsourcing of wisdom and advice and resources
2: for and by those who want to get ahead. It's going to be the first ever on-demand digital mentoring as
1: a service platform, and it'll provide practical insights, exercises, and inspiration on how to get ahead It'll be available via a website and an app and accessible to anyone, anywhere, anytime.
0: Sounds good. Well, how do you, So, the best ways to go get that sign up for that in advance would be?
1: If, if people go to mymentor.net, the website, they can register to receive um, notification later on when we launch it.
0: And I know you're also looking for another round of financing, is that correct? Uh, by April, is that accurate?
1: Uh, Hopefully it's going to close by the end of January. Brilliant.
0: All right, great. Well, David, thanks for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom, as you say. Hopefully you've retained all your wisdom uh, along the way. And uh, looking forward to staying in touch with you and finding out about my mentor in October 2017. Thank you very much. Thanks for having listened to this recording of The Mentor Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com. That's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter, at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sax's Painted Fingers.
3: Oh, fill me With all your colors Any different way To rid me of the gray